Are back in after an extended break with episode 68 of the Silly Goose Gang podcast. And we are incredibly delighted and honoured to be joined on our comeback episode with Bo Sandoval, who's the Director of Strength and Conditioning at the UFC Performance Institute. So, Bo, thank you very much for giving up your time and, and joining us today. Man, thank you guys for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm, uh, I don't know if I'm more impressed, Bo, with your job title or the beard. I'm not, uh, <laughs> that is a strong beard. Hey, I'll take that. I actually, I just cut about three inches off of it. So I'm getting to the, I'm getting to the age now where I know Ali is as well. Where I'm getting, I, I've just had a shave, but I'm getting the grey bits coming through here. Oh yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Lots, lots of salt in it these days. It's uh, awesome being middle aged. I think that's what we are. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. How, uh, how how do we how do we find you, Bo? How's life treating you? Life's doing, you know, it's doing pretty well. We're we've kind of dipped in and out of normalcy and 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 the COVID lockdowns and those sorts of things. But you know, not too much to complain about in our neck of the woods. You know, we've um, my boys have been able to go back to school. My wife's been able to continue to work. I've been able to continue to work. So we've been pretty fortunate. I know some have not been as fortunate. And uh, so we're just, we're just happy to keep plugging along, you know? Um, but yeah, everything is going well. We've got plenty of, of exciting events that have gone on in the last 16 months and lots of more coming up in the UFC. So not nothing, no way to get bored around here in terms of work. Uh, yeah. Plenty to do. Yeah. I'll- I'll bet. I'll bet. Bet you the probably have to deal with. Uh, well, I know a lot of crazy characters. So, do you uh, do you get to deal with these guys hands on, you know, on a daily basis when they're when they're out there, or how, how does it work? Yeah, we um. <clears throat> so, uh, our facility in Vegas, we probably have around thirty five to forty resident fighters that live in this area mm-hmm. um, that we see routinely week week to week. Um, and then we have those close by in Arizona, um, New Mexico, California, Utah, um, that we may see once a month, twice a month. Um, and then the spectrum just sort of spreads out as the distance, you know, separates us. But um, there's some fighters we may see once or twice a year. There's others we might see quarterly. Um, and then there's a remote interaction that's really it's a it's based on their engagement. But um with the remote interactions, along with the residents that we have, we, we routinely operate with about 80 to 85% of our roster year round. Our roster sits at right about 700 athletes globally. Um, so we, we stay busy. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot, a lot of people to look after. Yeah. What was, um, but were you actually involved so with this, these podcasts always happen this way. They always go kind of all over the place, but were you involved in the, the actual setting up of the, the, the performance Institute Bo? Um, I was recruited and hired during the process. So the okay. actual uh, construction of the building and all those sorts of things were kind of already in place. Um, we showed up, me and my team, we showed up, um, I guess it was probably about a month before our grand opening. Um, so there was still okay. a little bit of drywall going up, that kind of stuff. But um, we were just kind of waiting for them to put the finishing touches on it. We'd already kind of begun starting some conversations with local fight teams and some, uh, some coaches and a few athletes. So the day the doors open, we did have a handful of athletes to begin with right off the jump. Yeah. So that's, um, I'm going to assume that you must be uh, extremely highly rated to be invited or, or headhunted to, to 
to work for the you know director of the USC's PI. Like it must be must be fairly highly thought of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's always a good pat on the back. And and look, I was invited to participate in the recruiting process. Not that, not that they just gave me a key to the door, right? You know, from the first conversation, but it was it was uh, it was flattering to be able to participate and compete for the role. And, um, you know, my previous experience in combat sports kind of helped prepare me with, with yeah. being able to tackle some of the things that they were trying to go after and what the, the kind of services they wanted to provide to the rostered athletes. So, yeah, pretty fortunate to get to compete. And then, you know, it came to fruition and, and uh, we got to move from the frigid temperatures of uh, Michigan, which is northeast coast. Um, all the way out west to where we, you know, we'd rather burn to death than freeze to death. Me and my <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a good transition for us. It's been uh, uh, just under five years now. Yeah, that's pretty that's... cool. What, one, of the things, one of the things you've just touched on there, Bo, was uh, you were at University of Michigan as the, was it the Assistant Director of Olympic Sports at Michigan? Yes, sir. Yeah, and one of the things, this is one thing that a lot of our British listeners, and I know Chris won't get it, is I don't think over here we appreciate how big the NCAA system is. I, I follow a lot of NCAA football, um, Notre Dame Fighting Irish, not Michigan Wolverines okay. or Southern Miss Golden Eagles, but we'll put that to the side just now. But people don't get how big Michigan, University of Michigan is. So just for our listeners and the, the, the people listening to that, and maybe to blow Chris's mind a little bit, the big football stadium, at Michigan, what's its capacity, roughly speaking? The last time I was there, with the addition of some other luxury boxes, it was right around ninety-three thousand uh, officially. But on game day, they were known for letting upwards of one hundred and fourteen thousand in the gate. So Michigan fans are known for standing so that their counterparts can actually squeeze into the bleacher areas. Um, so yeah, it wasn't uncommon to have 114 plus thousand folks in there. Now keep in mind the resident population in Ann Arbor is only a hundred thousand. So football is quite a big deal in that area. Yep. Of the so I, I, I don't understand football at all. American football yeah. anyway. And, um, but there was a video, uh, I sent it to Ali on, on Instagram. Yeah, and it was a uh, Virginia Virginia Tech Hokies with their entrance to Enter Sandman. It was Enter Sandman. It was like a the first game back or something, and I was watching it going, "Holy shit! I want to move to America. This is fucking <laughs> awesome." Enter Sandman. The stadium is full, and there's like loads of veterans there. I'm like, that's that's so fucking cool. That's yeah, amazing. It's, uh, it's an exciting it's an exciting game. I can remember as a child uh, being in high school playing for my high school team. And coming out, and our stadium was called the Jungle, and we were coming out to welcome to the Jungle uh, by Guns and Roses. And the same feeling, I'm just like, it's Friday night, let's go, nothing else matters, and fucking ready to just kill somebody. Just so get pumped up and ready to yeah. just just yeah. smash. Quite an electric energy, you know, when when a game's coming on. Just like you know, you, you step into a stadium during World Cup time or anything like that. You know, you're watching a rugby sevens game, like man, yeah. it, it's electric. Like, yeah, some of the, it translates into the crowd and everywhere else. Some of the coolest things is um, certainly for for me and Ali, anyways, uh, is watching you know Flower of Scotland getting played at you know a rugby Scot uh, Scotland rugby game, Scotland versus England at Murrayfield and Flower is going. You're like, fuck, I fight, <laughs> give me a fucking claim on the horse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I mean, it's funny how that can uh, can really pump people up. But yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, man, those those atmospheres. Must, I, I I've never been to a USC event, but I guess some of those events must be. Like, I've been to a lot of um, uh, boxing shows in Scotland, 
Uh, Ricky yeah. Burns, some of the Ricky Burns shows in, in Glasgow when he was world yeah, champion. Yeah. Fucking crazy. Properly, like, everybody's shit-faced and chatting. Was, I think he fought Kevin Mitchell. And I remember sitting in the stands, and it was the SECC, so it would have been 15,000, but the fucking stands were moving. Like, everybody's jumping yeah. up and down and throwing yeah. pipes. Oh, man. I love yeah. that shit. Yeah, that's amazing. So, um, yeah. For, yeah. for an indoor event, uh, a UFC event is, man... It's something else. You gotta you gotta get in there and feel it to believe it because it is it's insane. I don't think I want to go to one in uh, you know wherever Manchester or Liverpool or I think I want to go to one in, in Vegas. Like that would be cool. I've heard that. I've only been to I've been to an event in Vegas. I've been to one in Florida and I've been to one in Texas, and um, all were amazing. But T-Mobile Arena in Vegas is just yeah. it just attracts everybody from yeah. the. The normal crowd to the celebrity crowd and you know some of the biggest fights that we host are there and yeah um, it's hard to beat it's hard to yeah. beat it's now one of the things that's cool is and it and this is um going back you know you know i so i came from a boxing background both so that's why i always like to refer to boxing but watching like the you know ricky hatton versus uh you know mayweather and, and uh jose Luis castillo you know i think they were um mgm and yeah. uh fucking the 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 you know the the British crowd singing songs was just staggering, absolutely amazing. Yeah. So that that to me looks really cool. So um, yeah. maybe we'll get it. maybe we'll get it. I always said if the, maybe it'll be Josh Taylor. Um, okay. Uh, you know if he gets a, a big fight in Vegas, maybe that'll be the fight that convinces me to jump on a flight and get over Take there. Little trip, yeah. Be fucking amazing. Um, uh, anything anything to get a few few beers in the sun, right? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, the fight uh, capital of the world man it's not a bad spot to be yeah i can imagine i can imagine uh but yeah so simply so we went off track again haven't we we just fucking go all over the place yeah, that's right it was because <laughs> i was asking about michigan one of, one of the things i was going to ask though when you were because obviously before you came to the ufc uh, performance institute bowl, bowl you were at the um university of michigan working with the olympic sports how, how did you work because at the moment with ufc i imagine it's and i use the phrase easier in relative terms but it's easier to program for MMA than I would imagine it was for multiple Olympic sports because you know with Olympic sports you must have been doing everything from you know the wrestling team I believe you worked with like the modern pentathlon team as well so how were you able to jump from you know potentially one period working with the wrestling team to then the next minute focusing on the the run at the end of the pentathlon just for argument's sake how were you able to jump from one to the other? So um, I'm going to back up a little bit. So my, our, okay. before the University of Michigan, I was at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, uh, part of the high performance team there. And I predominantly worked with combat sports there, but I had a few special projects on my plate in those three years I was there, which included a couple of elite marathoners, a few modern pentathletes, um, and uh, a couple of, of our former triathletes that had turned professional Ironman. And so um, a, a sort of dipping my toes into the waters of endurance sports really kind of gave me quite a deeper toolbox when it came to supplementing endurance training with other field sports, um, such as men's lacrosse or, or soccer, football. Um, you know, it just gives you a deeper toolbox in terms of strategies, how to, to go after things at a micro level um, that may be supplemental to another sport but you get really good at them because they're the, they're the meat and potatoes of a sport like decathlon or, or triathlon. Um, so that, then when I got to the University of Michigan, 
um, when we first got there, there were only about three of us on staff with 32 Olympic sports. And the idea was to generate a department for us to develop talent, to recruit talent, and to build a department to fully service all 32 programs that were there. So over the course of eight years, we added um, um, an additional nine full-time positions. We added a full postgraduate curriculum. We had postgraduate fellows that were there, as well as an army of, of voluntary interns and paid interns. Um, and then we, um, we were able to essentially apply a much more systematic approach to coaching and providing services that was much more catered to the needs of each sport because no coach had more than three sports to themselves. And so once we kind of, it took us a couple of years to build into that mode. Once we got there, my primary areas, areas of focus were track and field, uh, all events in track and field, men's lacrosse and women's basketball. And so that was able to kind of narrow things down a little bit, but I was able to take some of the strategies and things that I adopted from sports like modern pen and apply them to certain uh, areas of the training calendar with those various sports, depending on what the needs and demands were. Um, and then uh, being a, with the background in all combat sports, when I was with the Olympic committee, it was wrestling, boxing, Taekwondo, judo, fencing, um, Greco-Roman wrestling, and so I, I was able to help out the University of Michigan freestyle team while we were there um, for quite a bit. Um, and it was that pedigree and being around those weight classification sports where there's weight cutting involved, um, still heavy anaerobic, metabolic, anaerobic um, qualities of all of those sports in different doses. Um, the UFC was kind of looking for that sort of background. So that helped me with my recruitment there. But at the University of Michigan, um, you know, when you look at the entire microcosm of sport there, it's not like those kids just fucking wake up out of bed. They go practice, they train, and they go home and go to bed. It's a five-star academic institution. So their academic demands are in the top 3% in the country. Um, not to mention, we just so happen to be at one of the most competitive athletic institutions in the country as well. Um, so from a, from a, just a mental stress standpoint, it's one of the most difficult places for a collegiate athlete to compete at the highest levels due to the academic demand. Um, now with that being said, um, it, it is, it, it, on our end, it does get quite simplistic. You know, they're, they're not very complex in terms of the training strategies and schemes um, because number one, first and foremost, you, you got to teach college kids how to sleep and how to eat. We probably spent more time on that than anything. Um, they couldn't even tap into their God-given physical talents um, at their optimum until we could get them to nourish themselves and actually go to bed. Um, so the training aspect was actually, you know, we had carried a philosophy of just sound fundamentals and, and really getting them to absorb the fundamentals and be able to recover and adapt from those. Um, and that those, those caused enough stress to, to cause quite a bit of adaptation and progression throughout the time. Now we did, we did, we were able at an institution like that, we were able to get our hands on quite a few Olympic development athletes as well. So we had some exceptional talents that came through there that will, were quite able to go above and beyond the fundamentals of training. But um, I think oftentimes people see a big program like that that's highly successful 
and they make the assumption like they must be doing just out of this world training and it must be just another level and really what we're really trying to do is just take this massive monster and get them dialed into the fundamentals um, so that they can perform at a, at a high level. And um, so that, that was what we instituted for, for those eight years. Now we did, we were in a position to really kind of get at the forefront of cutting edge technology um, in terms of GPS technology and tracking systems and monitoring systems, diagnostic equipment. Um, we had a, a great partnership with our physiology and sports science departments where we had um, students and, and doctoral students and postgraduate students that would help us with um, not only gathering data, but disseminating and aggregating data. So it would be something meaningful for us. Um, so it was a great time to be there. But um, uh, that being said, I've, I've been at this for about 21 years now, and nothing has been even close to as fulfilling as working with these fighters day in and day out. Yeah, that's um, that's uh, that's a long time to be to be. This is one of the things I um, I get super pissed with is, I think it, it got worse during um, lockdown. There was what everybody's now doing. I don't know if it's the same thing in America, but over here, like everybody's doing these boot camp things and and uh, you know becoming a PT, and it, it fucking pisses me off so much when you get, <laughs> you know, because I you know I know I know good strength and conditioning coaches in Scotland and guys who have went to university for ten fucking years and and you know earned the stripes, you know, guy you know guys like you who have, who have studied everything and understand things and 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 then you get some asshole doing these stupid courses. You're like, oh, man, come on. Like, yep. like just work harder and eat less no yep. no no just do more burpees like no. it's a, it's in every industry isn't it you know yeah, it pisses me off so much um yeah but that's uh so just just so i'm going to assume that you would use very similar you know, so the fundamentals would be the same for all sports essentially so are you teaching everybody you know compound lifts or are you teaching everybody olympic lifts or you know what what are the what are the basic tools that you're trying to teach everybody that's a great question so when i think of lifts or i think of methods to me those are just tools in the toolbox so for each of those tools that sometimes it gets overlooked by your buddies that have the online boot camps and shit is that each of those tools took quite amount of time to amass uh, an, ex an expertise in. So when I went to more learn weightlifting, I, I not only weightlifted and competed, but I also officiated and I coached and I ran a club for 12 years. And so, um, and that was only, I didn't want to be a, you know, a weightlifting coach my entire life, but I wanted to be exceptional at being able to teach those movements because I believed in them and I wanted them to contribute towards my SNC programs. When I wanted to learn powerlifting, I trained with powerlifters and I learned optimal techniques and strategies around different styles of deadlifting and different styles of squatting um, for those so that I could benefit when it came time for peak force production in a lot of in, in, in a lot of other athletes' lives. Like I wanted to have those tools in my toolbox. So I look at those as all tools when I when I found uh, an objective that I'm trying to go after and I, Oh, you know what? This is the perfect tool for that objective. We're going to apply it. We're going to progress it over time. And that's how we'll do that. In terms of fundamentals, I have a, a short list of things that I believe not only as an athlete, but every human being should be able to do. And if you were going to sustain human functionality until the day you die, these are things that you should continually either be doing daily um, or have some rudimentary um, um, literacy with these things like breathing and bracing, 
squatting, hinging, pressing, pulling, crawling, carrying. Um, those are all human, basic human functions that we should be able to do. Now, just a century ago, um, it was almost mandated. You could find that in every schoolyard. Um, you know, adolescents were going through those things. You know, I remember vividly being taught by the details how to skip rope. And nowadays, we have fighters that, you know, 30 years old, no one's ever taught them how to jump rope before um, or, or do something as simple as a high knee run. Uh, you know, those are things that we used to learn in, in elementary and secondary school, and now they're not there. So um, we're losing some of these basic functions. And so we see it all the time. We see elite athletes, professional athletes doing high skill level things but they're doing it at a proficiency that's so weak because they simply don't know how to breathe and brace or their proficiency is so weak because they don't have lower limb control because they've never been taught unilateral or coordinated bilateral movement for, for that matter. Um, so that basic list for me and everyone's list is a little different, but that list for me kind of covers those things. If you can squat and you can hinge, I can teach you to lunge and I can teach you to crawl. I can teach you to shoot a single leg penetration step. Um, I can teach you to dip a slip and to throw an uppercut off of it because you now know how to negotiate your, your body over your center of mass or your center of mass over your base of support. So while people look at those things and are like, that's a really simple thing, they're teaching you very fundamental things that will allow us to elaborate on very complex things later on. So those are kind of my fundamentals. And then those fundamentals, if they're not solid, I can't teach an Olympic lift if someone doesn't know how to hinge. So I can't, I can't. It's, it's, it's so I'm so, so glad that you talk about the fundamentals because we regularly talk about this at, at jiu-jitsu when we're, you know, we, we, we know guys who like to do spinny, inverting shit, but they, they can't pass guard. It's like, yeah. you, you know, so, you know, I, I talk about it regularly with guys as well. You know, I'm forever seeing these fucking choreographed pad workouts, you know, guys boxing yeah. and you, you go, yeah, but what happens when the guy just steps back? Then what? Yeah. You know, because you, you're not moving your feet, you're just standing still and throwing these outrageous thing with the, the pad man's doing most of the work. Yeah, it's infuriating to me when you know. It, it, it's it's also it's one of those things where too like you know, everyone is up to their own interpretation. So you know the pad workouts like it's nothing near what it's going to be like in a fight. So what are you using the pad workout for? Just like a hinge. You know, a hinge can be a deadlift, it can be a kettlebell swing, or it can be a box jump. They're all a hinge. Um, but what are you using it for? So that's usually my question is contextually explain to me what you're doing with that. If it's just a placeholder, then I tell them they're a fucking idiot. Um, but if it's if there's actually a benefit to it, oh, he's got terrible, you know, endurance in his shoulders. So we use the pad workouts to build up a bit of work capacity. Okay, that makes good sense. But if you're telling me that that's how you're going to work combinations to benefit a fight strategy, then yeah, I'm with you. That, that doesn't work like that because that guy's face is not just going to jump in front of your hand like the pad does. Yeah. Um, so it's all about the contextual use of it. You know, what's the intent and, and what does it bring to the table? One of the things I also that I wanted to jump back to, just because you said, you know, going back 100 years. So, so as much as, you know, obviously – I will assume you embrace, you know, modern technology and modern application. Do you still, uh, do you still look back at, you know, like old strongman books about how they did things and how they lifted and things like that? Because I think a lot of people, you know, there's still things that we could like, you know, as you're saying, forgotten, where people like to look at the next, whatever sure. it is, 
without going back and going, okay, these guys were essentially not doing all that much different. Yeah. Uh, and it's quite interesting to to like hear somebody's opinion on that, you know, going backwards to look at what they were doing, how because you know, essentially pulling and pressing. The the mentality was was beautiful because the mentality was like, hey, you think you can pick that up? <laughs> and then the guy says, yeah, I'm going to try to pick that up. And then the next guy comes along, well, I can pick this up. And, you know, whether it was uh, a an Atlas stone or, a, you know, a Thomas Inch dumbbell or, or whatever the case was, um, uh, that was kind of the mentality. There wasn't such a calculated approach where they needed technology to guide them into that approach or a specific piece of equipment. Was, hey, that's an anvil and it weighs 200 kilos. Can you pick that up? That was the, that was the mindset. Um, so I appreciate some of that. We do use some of that actually with odd objects and what they call modern day, they call it more strongman training now, but um, even odd objects such as awkwardly heavy kettlebells. You know, when you start picking up a kettlebell that's your body weight or for some people body weight and a half, you know, they make kettlebells upwards of 260 pounds, you know, 100 and, 130, 140 kilos now. Or a mace, a steel mace, which is a one meter stick with upwards of a 22 kilo ball attached to the end of it. Um, well, now you're dealing with not only, you know, when we lift a barbell, when I lift a barbell, it's a perfectly balanced, engineered piece of equipment. Elico is not fucking around when it comes to perfectly engineering that thing. So I can optimally put it in the perfect spot where I can pull three times my body weight off the ground. Brilliant for maximal strength. When you look at a tool like an awkwardly heavy kettlebell or a steel mace for that, for that matter, now we're dealing with leverage disadvantage. Now we're dealing with relative strength, which has another side of benefits to it, which can help insulate and supplement our maximal strength that we can do with a very cooperative barbell lift. So I describe them a lot of times they're just very uncooperative exercises when you're yeah. swinging a kettlebell or a mace or even a body when you get into wrestling drills and things like that, jujitsu drills, you're learning how to negotiate a resistance that's not as cooperative. Um, so when you look at a lot of the traditional like strongman lifts and things, that's what they got good at. They were maximally strong and they did pull heavy things, squat heavy things, press heavy things to get maximally strong. But then they picked up really weird shit, sometimes <laughs> livestock, because it required a certain level of relative strength and skill to overcome leverage disadvantages, which um, I find to be really transferable in a sport like fighting because your opponent never wants to be cooperative. They don't want to be in the yeah. position that you want them to be in to pick them up or to put them down. Um, so you're constantly having to fight for position. There's a lot of positional accuracy that is required. And that's what odd lifts require. They require positional accuracy or you just simply will not pick it up. Yeah. I think the, the only thing um, I've, I've talked about this before um, is the only thing that I've ever tried to pick up that was weird. It's not even weird, really. It's just an Atlas stone. And it was a 120 kilo Atlas stone and uh, the gym that I used to lift weights in. Now, 120 kilo to you know pull off the floor would be you know where I would start warming up for a deadlift. Sure, yeah. And uh, like 120 kilo Atlas, but it was like, what the fuck? Yeah, couldn't, couldn't move it other than roll it back and forth. Inches in diameter, yeah. What the fuck is this? And just tried everything and went up. No, I can't move it. I can't get it off the ground. Yeah, because that is super bizarre. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. So it's it's quite you know, it's just. It's always an interesting to speak to somebody who's, you know, like yourself on the, the idea of the application of these things. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not, not often yeah. to get a chance to do it, but yeah, it's interesting to get your opinion on it. 
Totally. Just just with you talking about those fundamentals and the basics, Bo. So you said at the start you have, again, I apologise, I forget the number, but you said sort of 30 or 40 local to the Institute fighters. And then you have people come in from, you know, 85% of the roster come in for various times. So yeah. how, how, how are you assessing and evaluating them then based on those fundamentals? Because you must have people that come in, like you're saying, 30 years old, never skipped rope might be okay at a deadlift, but I've never trained with kettlebells or vice versa. So how are you evaluating assessing that to then work out what you need to do to improve or, or work on over that period of time, whether it's 6, 8, 12, 14 weeks? Sure. So um, I'm going to steal a quote from our, our director of performance here, Dr. Duncan French. Um, if you're not assessing, you're guessing. And so if it's a new athlete that we've not had eyes on before, that we haven't had an engagement with, the first thing, everything starts with assessment. And so we'll, we'll schedule them for a battery of introduction, consultation, and assessments with not only our strength and conditioning staff, but our medical staff, our team of dietitians, our psychologists, um, uh, and really anyone on our team that we can get them to engage with. They're not always, when they come here, their, their first initiative of engagement is not always centered around strength and conditioning. In fact, it might be I know they got a strength coach. I really don't want to fucking talk to that guy. Um, I just want to talk to the dietitian because I'm going to get my weight squared away. You know, it starts that way. And then it, the way our team is built and engineered is that any of us can operate as a lead at any given time. And it's kind of our job then to direct them towards the other services to teach them how these things holistically work together. So in terms of if I get an athlete for the first time, um, We'll do a consultation. I'll get some understanding at where they're at in their career, what they've accomplished, what they want to accomplish physically, where they are, um, what some of their goals and aspirations are physically. And then we'll start with a battery of diagnostics. During that battery of diagnostics, they're going to go through a fundamental daily warm up. Our daily warm up is going to have criteria in it of all of those categories I just listed breathing and bracing, um, hinging, squatting, crawling, carrying. Um, pressing, pulling, all of those things will be in there in some version or another. Most pretty simple, just to get some idea of their literacy in them. Um, and then we'll go through our diagnostics. We'll get some absolute measurements and objective measurements around strength and power, energy system diagnostics. Um, uh, and once they've concluded that, we'll have time to compile our data. In the meantime, our medical team is screening them. They're doing a basic physical assessment they're also doing a movement screen that they've engineered that's centered around a lot of those principles as well. Breathing mechanics, bracing, the ability to hinge, the ability to squat, lunge, balance. Um, pretty simple and pretty quick to obtain, but it's just to gather some understanding of what their competencies are. Um, so then when we begin training, even if regardless of the results of that, they're going to see that daily warm up again, and they're going to see progressions of that daily warm up. That daily warm up is going to provide frequency in those movements, but to where they never depreciate, they'll always be there. It's also going to provide daily feedback on what they're getting good at and what they're still pretty terrible at. And that will give me some understanding of how much to progress the loaded characteristics of their workouts, as well as maybe other things that we need to be sprinkling in as ingredients, supplemental ingredients into their training. So quickly we'll recognize, okay, this is someone that's high up on the ladder that we can dive into some more complex schemes early on, or this is someone who may be a high performer 
in the cage, but is very rudimentary in terms of their physical skills. So we may start further down on the progression ladder. Um, and, you know, I have a staff of, I have two full-time coaches that work here with me. And then we have a couple of interns I also have a staff in Shanghai, China that works at the Institute there. Um, and I give full autonomy to those coaches to investigate and dissect those athletes while they're going through those daily warmups and understanding where their progression needs to lie and helping identify their needs analysis and how to prescribe moving forward. And we'll discuss as a team, but I really give them the, the autonomy to be able to figure that out and come up with a strategy for improvement. Sounds like um like a really really well thought out plan and uh, and and program that you guys have put together, um because you know and and you know I know from amateur boxing, you know I started two thousand and nine, um, and the whole amateur system and and I know and you you know a lot of the guys who were pro, they would they had no idea like still don't really have any idea how to to get strong how to get fit how to cut there really isn't any idea so to hear a program like this in place is really impressive like the, yeah. the organization from everybody singing from the same hymn sheet sure like, this is how we do it and this is how we're going to go around about it it's super impressive to see that now i'll tell you that's that's five years of development so i didn't just cook that up on my lunch break that's a, this has been these have been things that we've dealt with that we've revisited that we've refined and um and really sharpened over the last five years so it, it's been a, and this has been a team effort i mean input and feedback from our medical staffs from our our performance director from our sports scientists you know this is everyone contributing and pitching in um so it starts with a mission and and that's a mission that that um again dr duncan french is kind of set us on in the beginning we kind of had some very clear parameters of what look this is what we need to accomplish um and everyone in their own respective areas kind of figuring out ident and identifying how they were going to contribute towards that mission and for us a lot of it was man we need to establish some standards of how athletes move and how they you know you know if you're if you're below standard and how you hinge you shouldn't be swinging a body weight kettlebell if you can't hinge, you know, you, you shouldn't get past maybe learning how to jump on a box or how to hinge for a rod jump or, a, you know, something that is relatively unloaded until you become more competent in that movement. And we have, man, we have a lot of athletes that they struggle with the disassociation between the lumbar and the hip girdle and their ability to not do that affects how they hinge, which affects how they load into the ground. It affects how they use their posterior chain. It affects how they throw their right hand. Um, and until they become acquainted with that chain of systems, um, it's tough to improve performance. Sure, I can load them and I can get them tired and I can get them fatigued. I don't know that that is causing the type of adaptation that we're looking for um, to be able to deliver a payload that's going to put someone down on the ground. Yeah. So that's, that's something that, sorry, Chris, that's something that Chris has mentioned as well previously when we've been chatting, Bo, is that element of those weekend warrior boot camp types, anyone can design a workout that can make you tired and sore and, you know, not able to perform the next day, but it must be a balancing act for yourselves to make sure that you're loading them, but loading them at appropriate level. So they're able to perform the next day and the next day throughout the camp. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like analogies and I mean, the, the boot camp approach, that group approach, that's a that's a fishing net 
you throw a net out, you'll catch some fish for sure. There's no doubt about it. But if you want to catch that really big motherfucker, you're going to need to specialize and get precise with a specific lure at a specific depth, water temperature on a specific time of day. If you're going to catch a big, smart, giant fucking fish. And so if you want to create a world champion, it's the same way. There has to be a level of precision. There has to be a level of precision in everything that they do from start to finish. Um, and, and those are the millimeters. Those are the inches of separation, um, between first and fifth place. You know, I tell people all the time, when you look at our fighters that are outside of the top 20 in each of our weight classes, there's a lot of commonality when they start to get special or to separate is when they get inside the top five, you get inside the top five, there are some definitive parameters physically and skillfully that make them very different from those that are outside the top 20. Um, and a lot of that has to do with direct intent around their training, not just their strength and conditioning training, but their, their tactical training um, and the accuracy at which they perform it. Now, do you think, um, do you think that, you know, given another five years of development, that that, that separation from, you know, the top five, <laughs> the elite of the elite, do you think that separation will become greater and more obvious from, you know, 10 to 20 than the top 10? because you know it grows and grows i think with the culture absorbing you know better education and the culture really trying to better prepare fighters and establish fight camps um, i think you're actually going to see it spread the other way i think you're going to see that specialty of the top five turn into the top 10 um and what we see up to the top 20 maybe back up into the top 30 and the reason i say that has a lot to do with the tactical side of the sport right now um 15 years ago you had a wrestling specialist grappling specialist who then learned how to strike at 25 years old or 30 years old or you had a kickboxer or a striker who learned how to wrestle at 25 or 30 years old nowadays with the predominance of mma gyms all over the world we're getting 13 14 15 year old kids in amateur ranks that are learning how to fight mma right from the onset and so what that does for you from a knowledge standpoint, it gives you an understanding of distance, knowing the difference between punching distance, kicking distance and takedown distance, which is always the learning curve as people jump from genre to genre of combat sport. It's understanding the distance of when I'm in danger and when I can attack. Um, the best fighters in the world are good at understanding all three, punching distance, kicking distance and takedown, um, takedown distance. If you're not well-versed in any one of those three, you're going to get exploited pretty quickly. So you have this young generation of fighters that's learning that fundamentally right from the jump as a teenager. And so that's causing a shift in the evolution of the sport um, where we're, you know, there's not as many specialists getting into the sport. We're actually getting thoroughbred MMA fighters from a young age. Yeah, I remember um, when I first started to watch MMA, I think it would have been like, Chuck Liddell versus Tito Ortiz and you know that kind of time frame and there was always um they always came up on the, you know the bar across the bottom you know the, the record and then it would come back you know with uh you know boxing boxing or you know, Muay Thai or wrestling background or something that came up with the background it was like you said now there's a lot of um a lot, a lot of these young kids now are just learning how to fight MMA those little assholes are going to be a real problem. And uh, oh, yeah. well, now, the, the amateur associations are pushing for MMA in the Olympics. 
which is, um, you know, it would be with head, it would be similar to amateur boxing. It would be with headgear, shin guards, um, heavier gloves. Um, and it'd probably be in a two minute round format, you know, three, two minute rounds or something along those lines, but they have amateur youth, um, fight leagues globally now that are like one, three minute round again, with that equipment, shins, gloves, headgear, um, no headshots. They're only allowed to strike to the body and to the legs. Um, and even some of the leagues don't allow ground and pound. You can score a takedown and you can do ground control time. You just can't strike while they're on the ground. So they have protective measures involved. But what this is doing is you're giving live fight round experience to younger athletes. And they're not necessarily taking the same amount of damage. So you're giving them the ability to mature as a tactician early on, um, which, man, I can't wait yeah, to see some of them when they're that... 22, 23 years old. That's one of the things that always, it was always a little bit confusing to me in the beginning. It still is confusing, actually, um, you know, with, with MMA. Is, um, there wasn't given, a lot of guys didn't get any time to, to, to just get rounds, to get, to, get, to get rounds under their belt. And, you know, that was a thing in boxing where, you know, a guy turns pro and he might have 20 fights where he's just gaining experience, getting rounds. Yeah. And uh, it looks like you're about to speak to somebody. I'm good. Oh, sorry. I thought I thought it was going to be something really I'm important. Turning something off on my screen. <laughs> um, no, it's just uh, you know, you know, boxers, you know, professional boxers, always got twenty fights yeah. to um, to go get some rounds to get some sure. you know, beat some guys up with that. You know, they just used to throw throw guys in an uh, MMA. You know, they've had seven or eight fights and they kill your fight for the title. When you go, maybe it'd be nice if they had you know yeah. like some seasoning. Yeah. Get some Beginning season. too, it was much more of no holds barred. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, the sport for the sport to evolve and to be able to be accepted by fight commissions in all 50 states, let alone overseas and other in other countries, they had to formalize the rule sets, they had to formalize and come up with a unified rule system. And um, so that's why you saw the evolution of the sport from more no holds barred to mixed martial arts, which is much more of a, of a, um, a regulated gentleman's game compared to back then when yes <laughs> hey jimmy's free on saturday he's 30 pounds heavier than tommy but that's okay we'll let him fight you know um not yeah. much closer to the the human cockfight mentality compared yeah. to what we have now so um we're uh there's a couple of things and we're not we're not quite getting there but we're, we're, we're getting down onto the downward stretch now so there's a couple of things i want to ask um so you were talking about uh three times bodyweight deadlift is that something that you've you've done? You've done a three times bodyweight deadlift? Not not myself. I think my best deadlift was. I'll try to give it to you in kilos. Five hundred and fifteen pounds at about. Oh, that's very simple. That's very simple. That's very simple. I think I was. I think I was I, around eighty-one kilos when I did that. But. Okay, so you're 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 way stronger than me. I did two forty kilos, which I believe is five oh seven. Okay. So I think that's around about the right that kind of weight. So yeah, that's super, that's that starts getting heavy. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, there's no better way to like battle yourself inside your head than grinding on something that just doesn't want to move. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's just uh, it's just such a mental fuck, man. It's one of the things that I've always I've always liked about I love deadlifting. One of the things that I've always liked is, you know, you, you see it in every gym where you know somebody'll uh, you know this whole you know it's all you, bro. When somebody's benching or somebody's squatting, you know, and the, the friends kind of and they got them under the armpits or whatever, and um, there's no way to cheat a deadlift. It either comes off the fucking ground or it doesn't. Yeah, or it doesn't. 
Yeah, that's what I love about it. Um, but yeah, so that's pretty cool. So, two, so five fifteen at eighty one kilos. Eighty one kilos will be one eighty. Yeah, about that. Yes, super yeah. close to super close, like two point seven times body weight. Yeah, because I, I think. Um... We did speak about this before, Ali, and I can't remember who it was with. And I was like, I think the, the golden rule was always like three times body weight deadlift was like elite. That's like, yeah, you're up, you're up there. Um, but I really think that's true. When you lift around some of the women that I used to lift with, you don't feel that elite. Yeah, like because Steffi, <laughs> Steffi Cohen's like four times body weight. You're like, how? Oh yeah. Like how the? F- we did talk about this because I had when I did two forty, and I only did it once, and I went like two thirty five a couple of times. And I felt I made like as you do, you know, and dolphins are real, and I was fucking, ah! and I fucking yeah. thought like I'm the strongest man in the world, and I'm this, yeah. and then it was like um, a Swedish girl, I can't remember her name now, and she was like a sixty-five kilo lifter, and she yeah. pulled two forty, and then it was like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, my oh, wife, God. my wife pulled one hundred and eighty-two kilos at fifty-eight kilos body weight. Jesus Christ, that's three that, point. She wasn't a power lifter; she was a weightlifter. Um, but she's I'm, she, I'm such a little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing. It's, a, it's I love watching it. You know, it's I don't even get angry. I just think it's it's tremendous. Oh, it's impressive. Yeah, I mean you can't impressive. just be you know it's just admire what they can super do. Impressive. Um and uh so you do you're a jujitsu guy as well, right? I do have been um you know, I started my jujitsu journey when I was in college, um, around 2002. Okay. Did, did about three years worth. Then, um, started traveling and working, didn't do anything really consistent for a while. When I was with the national teams for wrestling, I used to wrestle and grapple with them a little bit, but nothing formal, no formal curriculum. And then when we moved to Vegas, um, I took a deep dive. I was like, man, I got to jump back on this wagon. And I took a deep dive back in. So about a 15 year hiatus from a structured program. Um, and man, I love it. Now I've been back in it now for about three years and um, I got two little boys that are in it as well. So that's cool. become a little bit of a family affair now. It's, yeah. uh, it's nice yeah, when it's the nice when the kids are involved. My now 18 year old trained is dropped off now because he's 18 and there's better things to do with this time. But he, uh, he trained for a while and it is nice when the family all come together. Because yeah. you, you, you hunt, you're an outdoorsman as well, aren't you, Bo? I am. You guys have been doing your research. We have indeed, <laughs> yes. Because it's, it's something that me and Chris are, because over in Scotland, it's just like we don't have hunting in the same way that you guys have over there. Sure. Over here, it's it's very, it's, it's essentially upper class, isn't it, Chris? You go to shoot in estates and yeah. pay a lot of money to take down a stag of which you might get a couple of stakes and the rest of the stag goes back to the estate. But in America, I know you're a big a big hunter and an outdoorsman, aren't you? Yes, I, I grew up around it. Um, you know, my mother's family actually um, they immigrated from Scotland down. They came ah. in through they came in through Philadelphia in the northeast, and they went straight down south and they bought a plot of land about 50, 50 miles off the Gulf Coast, um, right on the border of Mississippi and Louisiana. So we actually still own that land today. It's ah. about 90, about ninety square acres. So my family has hunted and fished that my whole life. And then as I've grown up and made buddies in other places, I've just been fortunate enough to hunt a few different states. And I did take, you know, quite a bit of time off from that as well, just as I was working and trying to earn my stripes and make my way through this profession. Uh, But in the last, you know, 
10 years or so, I've definitely gotten back into it more. And I'm, I'm, uh, we're, I'm excited. My wife has gotten into it quite a bit as well. We're, we're actually trying to strategize in the next year or two, trying to get overseas somewhere to do some things. So um, it's a lot of fun. And I, I just, I'm a big believer in knowing how to do things with your hands, um, knowing, how, knowing how to provide for yourself, just trying to be a more capable human being and, you know, harvesting meat is one of those things for me. This is um, it's something that so I have a, a friend who uh, my friend David who 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 does go shooting and he's he keeps inviting me but it never works out you know just with work and life and but it's, I, I have to you know I don't have a license we, you you have to have a uh, some very you can't bow hunt in Scotland you have to rifle hunt so oh. I need to I need to go learn how to shoot properly and I'd love to go with him and, and actually I just exactly how you've described it there just be more capable and, yeah. and we, we talked about this because the whole podcast started at the start of lockdown and me and I, you were talking about we, we've talked about this in the podcast with a few different people and, and one of the things that struck me early on was like th- this whole thing could fall to bits really really so i already it could fall to bits so quickly and i already had i knew where i was getting what like in my head because i'm a bit crazy in my head i knew where i was getting water from okay i know where there's a fast i know there's a you know a really fast running stream i can get water from there if there's no water i don't know why there'd be no water but that was in my head so i already had a, i already figured out how i was going to strap you know a 20 liter can and go get water every day and then i was like hey but i don't know how to, i don't know how to hunt yeah so what happens when everything goes tits up you know what's crazy we're only we're only 150 years removed from having supermarkets you know we used to that's how you went and got meat or food or you went out and you cut down wheat and you refined it and you made bread like that you know we're not that far away from that so it it is a little bit um scary how much we've forgotten yeah um, in just 150 years time so yes um i've i've got some uh I'm just looking at it just now because it, it's quite funny. A, a former guest of ours, I have a knife making book when I've, I'm going to, you know, want to start like setting up and how do I make a knife? Yeah. Really gotten more into this. Like, how did, how did, and how I did tell I you, forging is, uh, is another skill that it's awesome. It's, uh, it's one of those things, those rites of passage that if you can do that, there's a lot of things that, that you're capable of, whether you know it or not. Um, I've got a couple of friends here, states, one in Hawaii, one in Montana, that they're, uh, they're both master bladesmiths. That's what they do for a living. And so man, be, they can take a chunk of metal and turn it into is it's mind blowing. Would that be, uh, what's his name? Is it Josh, Josh Smith? Josh Smith owns Montana Knife Company. Yeah. Um, man, he's a fantastic human being, great hunter himself. Um, and uh, he's got a ranch in Montana and, yeah, and yeah. um, yeah, that's where his forge is at. He, he's been a custom knife maker for a long time. And then he's just recently got a partner and they've started the Montana knife company, which is a series mm-hmm. of production knives that he makes. Um, and they're fantastic. And they're, he makes skinners, he makes fleshing knives. He's made yeah. um, little, little uh, carry knives and yeah. And they're tough. They're tough and they are sharp as fuck. So, so that uh, we we had on Laura Zera, who's really okay. That was yeah. I have Laura's book, and yep. um, so Laura's now a friend. She's as fucking crazy as she's actually. amazing. She's crazy. I've been in camp a couple of times with Laura. In oh America. yeah, and so I have um, I have things where I was just talking to somebody about this recently, and I'm just looking to where it was. I would show you, but I have a I have Laura's toenail. I have a toenail of Laura's. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, legitimately, yeah. She's fucking mad. Um, so, yeah, so uh, uh, if, if I fucking had it, I would show you. But yeah, I've got a Tony Loris because uh, we're now friends. So, um, but yeah, so I've had books and I, I want to learn how to make knives. Um, but yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, I love that life. You know, we're, I was talking about it with. Um, and it's something that, I mean, honestly, if you just put some time into it, like anyone can learn to do that. Yeah. Uh, so you know, there's an artistic side where the talent comes in, but in terms yeah. of making a tool that you can use every day, anyone can learn how to do that. So I'm, I'm lucky that I have, uh, you know, I own a business, a couple of businesses and um, I have a little, I have my own little gym set up now. So I have, I have enough space where I can put something together and uh, just basic and, um, and you know fuck about and and try and play with things i have that time and i'm you know i'm single and uh, no kids because you know i'm unlovable so i have the time to do it so i'm, I'm gonna do i'm just gonna be the crazy guy who starts the crazy guy in scotland to make knives um that's gonna be me but yeah I'm, I'm, hey, when the apocalypse hits you'll be the one everyone runs to uh, I hope so, man. Uh, listen, we're getting uh, we're getting close to half past. So I think we must be getting close to sixty minutes. Start. Um, one yeah, thing I'll say, start. just just because you've said um, your your mum's side came from Scotland, you know where about she came from? Um, the area I'm not familiar, but we have some headstones in our family cemetery that are um, the oldest one. I believe they were buried in 1851, and the last okay. name was McInnes. Okay. There's McGinnis. Um, there's another. I'm trying to think of the other name that's prevalent. My mother's maiden name is Woodard. Um, that that has kind of transcended through the generations. But um, uh, McGinnis and McLeod. Those are the two. Oh, okay. Those are the two oldest names that are in that cemetery. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and one of my, I can't remember how many greats. It had to have been maybe a fourth great grandmother. Um, her name was Ollie Idella McLeod. Oh, which I had never heard the name Ollie for a woman. I had never heard the name Idella before until I read that woman's headstone. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's unusual. Uh, and the other, name. The other yeah. thing, the other thing, uh, uh, what size of uh, what size of rash guard do you wear? Uh, I wear a large. A large. Okay, let me see. Okay. I have a. I, I designed a, a Scottish rash guard, so it's a. I'll, oh, I'll get, man. send you a picture, but it's um, it's William Wallace choking Nessie. Yes. I'll get Ali to send. I'll get Ali to send you a picture, and uh, if you send your details, we'll um, we'll get you one out. Um, oh we'll man, that's awesome. Over. That'd be cool. Yeah, we'll get that um, yeah, Definitely we'll sweat that thing up. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Just as, as we're winding down them both, again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Just so we can send some other people your way or where can people find you and find out more about your work and on the social media or internet or whatever needs. And we'll tag this or, into the, the um, notes and onto the video. Yeah, my, my IG account is bobo.sandoval. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Oli Strength, O-L-Y Strength. Um, those are the two fastest ways to get me. Um, I typically people, you know, DM or message me. I, I usually get to them. I don't always get to them immediately, but I I'm really good about not forgetting anybody. So I always love the stories when, you know, I'll, I'll send someone an answer and they'll reply back and they're like, man, that was three months ago. I'm a man. Thanks for just taking the time and answering. I'm like, Hey, I'm not always the fastest. There's a lot of shit on my plate, but I, I love interacting with people. So I always try my best awesome. to, to get back to them. So, 
Awesome, man. Well, we uh, we we really appreciate your time, and uh, it was it was good fun, and it's been we we haven't done one in a little while, so we were probably a little rusty to start with, but I felt we got right. we got we got warmed up there. So um, yeah, man. I'll uh, yeah, if if you send your send uh, details to Ali, I'll I'll get one of those um sent out to you, and uh, we, yeah, we better let you run, man, because that's that's basically six Absolutely. minutes. Absolutely. Okay, man. Yeah. Sounds cool. great. Thanks so much. Uh, likewise, thank you for taking the time. So that's episode 68 with uh, Bo Sandoval. We are officially back saying done and dusted. So thank you for your time. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Okay, man. The Silly Goose Gang Podcast. <laughs>